Are you seeking to broaden your horizons, to stay relevant and become future fit? Do you want to fuel your creativity and inspire innovation? Or are you simply looking to put the kapow back into your business? Then look no further. Join Carmen Murray, entrepreneur, innovator, and tech fundi with her big personality and presentation style as she interviews celebrities, alchemists, newsmakers, and business experts to discover the stories behind their success. The Carmen Murray Show will open your mind and help you turn knowledge into magic. Let knowledge be your superpower. And now, from Solid Gold Studios, here's your host, Carmen Murray. Hey, 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 Future Fit Tribe, welcome to yet another podcast episode I'm super excited about today, especially today, because if I have to be super honest, COVID has really impacted me in such a way, it's now closer than ever. I know more people, and I say more rest and peace on a daily basis than I've ever done in my entire life. I have friends that have said goodbye to eight family members, 12 family members, and it's really real. I have to be honest, I haven't gone to a dentist since lockdown last year. I haven't cut my hair (laughs) since lockdown last year, and I am petrified of going to see a doctor, purely because from my perspective, I'm, I'm concerned because the doctors are too tired. And I'm concerned of negligence. I'm concerned about the sick people going into the into the waiting rooms. And it's just a very messy dynamic for me. So Google, I know this is maybe wrong, but Google does tend to become my doctor when things I, I have symptoms. And then I, I would make the decision of if I'm going to go to the pharmacy or not, or whether I'm just going to order my, my medication. That's what I do. I might not be doing the right stuff, but that's what I do. So I decided to actually invite guests that can give us a little bit more clarity on this topic. So today we have with us Dr. Peter Cruz. Now, I'm not going to diminish all his credentials because this is a super smart guy. And I'm going to let him introduce himself to us. And then we've got one of my favorite people, David McLean, who is also going to become an academic doctor soon. <laughs> and um, also a very smart guy. And, and I just really hope that we can have a robust conversation to understand and paint a picture what doctors are going through, what patients are going through, and the challenges that that we might not actually realize is happening. So without further ado, over to you, Dr. Peter Cruz. Good morning, and thank you very much for inviting us for this opportunity. Just to introduce myself briefly, I'm a, a medical doctor with a number of other qualifications, including an MBA. And I first met Jonathan Foster Pedley, the Dean of Henley, Um, about 20 years ago when I did my MBA under him. And my MBA thesis was actually on digitizing my own profession, which is anatomical pathology, for the 21st century, which has now arrived. So I've been uh, interested in this subject for a very long time. David? Great. Carmen, thank you for having us. I'm grateful to be a part of this conversation, not as a medical professional, but as, I guess, a citizen of a very disrupted world and equally uh, somebody who is very interested in and committed to uh, working with people and organizations to future-proof themselves and what that really means. And, of course, it's highly subjective, highly contextual. And I've had the privilege of working with Peter for the past year now on an incredible project that uh, uh, we will talk about uh, during the conversation. And I think that the, the thing that I'm most interested in in, in my work and in, in the work that I do with many other people and organizations is there's a lot of talk. It's, it's, you know, in, in the, it's in the buzzword, the fad column of pivot, pivot your business. Well, totally. I mean, if, if I just look from a perspective, one of the biggest trends that we're currently seeing is cocooning. People are hiding in their homes. They don't want to leave their homes. Double masking is happening. So all of these patterns are existing. But I think one thing that keeps on going around is the doctors. And sometimes I'm flabbergasted, especially if I look what's happening in America and the conspiracy theories that is really jeopardizing the doctors in the front line. And I really would like, Dr. Cruz, maybe if you can paint that picture for us, what it must be like for the doctors working in the front line 
bombarded by people not having enough beds. My dad, uh, two weeks ago, fell in the bath and he broke two hips, elbow and his arm. And he could not be admitted into government hospital for three days. And they, it, they took about a week to operate on him because they just don't have enough capacity. So I'm really just trying to understand what is going on behind the scenes that we as people need to know. Okay, look, this is a, a very complex and human story. I think if we go back to Dale Carnegie, he said that today is the tomorrow you should have worried about yesterday. And actually, none of us planned properly for this uh, eventuality, that there might be some external thing, a pandemic, which overwhelms our health uh, systems and results in a dysfunction, which has taken us a long time to recover from. The factors are many. One of them is our failure to plan. Another one is that our systems did not build any resilience or redundancy uh, into the beds, for example, or the PPE. And we've had to kind of make it up as we go along. So there was no cookbook that we could just reach for on a shelf somewhere, what to do in the event of a pandemic. Ironically, in South Africa, because we've handled or are handling very well two of the biggest pandemics in the, of the 21st century and the 20th, which is HIV and TB, we were in quite a good position in terms of having the epidemiology, having the lab testing capability, having the contact tracing and testing and all of that set up. But that is, if you like, from a public health aspect, not from a personal health point of view. The need, as David was saying, to redo the way, relook at the way we do healthcare and the way we provide for people um, has had to be accelerated. And this is where telemedicine and telehealth and the phone and email and other modalities have, have come in quite rapidly. And so now people are, are trying to understand, first of all, will my dignity and my privacy and my confidentiality be protected if I go on, uh, you know, to Zoom with a doctor or onto WhatsApp or the, or the telephone. They need to understand that, that what telemedicine does is bring the consultation into their home. So they do not have to leave their home where they're cocooning. And you, you may know that uh, Jonathan Foster Pedley did a nice interview with Faith Popcorn, who was the uh, author of that phrase and the book, Cocooning. So we're bringing the consultation into the person's home. They don't have to get into a car and drive and spend money and petrol and so on. They don't have to wait in a waiting room where they might get infected or infect other people, as the case may be. So this, this is a, it's quite an advance. In the background, we're helping the doctor who's going to see you in your virtual environment. And it includes all practitioners, not just medics, but, you know, the speech therapist, the physiotherapist, the psychology, psychiatry, all the support systems have the same dilemma. We're helping them to build, in parallel, a virtual consulting room, which is set up in a way that you could book an appointment or uh, have a repeat prescription or ask questions using modern things like chatbots and so on, which will make your life easier and, and more efficient. And then in the background, there's also quite a lot of work going on in terms of regulating the medico-legal side, uh, what the Health Professions Council will allow, what the medical aids are comfortable to pay for, and so on. So I think all of us are collaborating in a partnership way to cope with this across a broad front. And uh, it is going to be eventually easier, cheaper, and safer to do more telemedicine in a hybrid model so you'll still be able to see your doctor face-to-face -face if it's an emergency or the condition requires it. Clearly, we're not advocating telemedicine for acute heart attacks and strokes and cases like your father who have to be seen as, as an emergency. Now, in relation to the beds, one of the big problems in South Africa, as you'll know, is that our beds and our operating theatre capacity and to some extent our PPE has traditionally been taken by trauma cases, which are the result of road traffic accidents interpersonal violence, gender-based violence, and all the other sad things that happen in our country. And these are largely fueled by alcohol. And so one of the good steps that the government did take in order to create bed capacity, it's alarming that your father was not able to be seen immediately. My best friend from school days was knocked off his bicycle in Somerset West about six weeks ago, and he had the same problem. Um, he was treated for his fractures in hospital, then discharged, but when he developed a complication, they couldn't find him a bed anywhere. And so the uh, alcohol prohibition, although it's unpopular, has created that extra 20, 30% capacity 
in the system to deal with the non-COVID cases, if you like, since most mm. of the beds and the capacity is taken. So part of what we're trying to do is to help the healthcare system, the doctors, to generate some spare capacity so that when these epidemics and unforeseen things happen, they can handle them. David? Yeah, I'm, I'm struck um, while listening to Peter, I'm, I'm, I'm reminded about the privilege of technology in that access to telemedicine is something that those of us on this in this conversation have have access to or could have access to if, if we chose to and that requires you know a, a mobile phone or a computer and and of course an internet connection uh, at this time ho- hopefully it might data free data list access might become a, a reality in due course and i really hope it does and so that's just one thing i just wanted to mention that because it's important that we don't forget that an enormous proportion not just of our south african population but of the global population still don't have access to the internet regardless of their their device of choice or availability so that's the one thing and then the second thing is that a useful point of reference for this pivot to digital consultation a, a way that i propose we can manage our anxiety about the efficacy of this. So I know what it's like. I have a significant lived experience of going to the doctor. How do I know that without the laying on of hands, with a stethoscope against my chest or a press against my my, my swollen you know gland or so, it is going to still be accurate? And of course, I, I don't know that for sure. But what what I can help myself to reduce my anxiety and to be far more willing and enthusiastic about practicing that, interacting with that, is that I use WhatsApp, I use Zoom, I use these um, applications every single day in my my work and in, in, in my private life, and that it's really just incorporating my visit to the GP into that workflow. Meaning when hard lockdown happened nearly a year ago, there was a lot of understandable, you know, overwhelm, bewilderment, panic, excitement, because we'd never done that before on that scale as a world, not just as a business or as a family or as a community, but as, as a world. I think a lot of upsides with the, the, this pivot uh, for access, albeit that clearly not everybody has digital access at this time. And I want to, I want to actually go there because I'm very passionate about digital divide. There's quite a lot of challenges that comes with, with digital divide because you have people in rural areas. Prepaid in our country costs a lot more than it costs, you know, to, to access data bundles or, you know, to have a contract. And I think 80% or 88% of people are on prepaid in, in, in South Africa specifically. Um, according to the We Are Social reports recently, um, published, I think it was July, July 2020. Furthermore to that is, um, not everybody has a smartphone. Um, not everybody is savvy knowing how to work on a, that, I mean, there's very few people that have access to computers in South Africa. Not alone just to think about a smartphone. There's still a lot of people that don't have access to a smartphone with the basic features. And this becomes a, quite a challenge because it almost feels to me, Yes, this is the only way that we can solve the problem for the doctors, but how is this solving the problem for the patients? Um, you know, the previously disadvantaged people that are being affected by this. If I think of my parents, they don't even know, I mean, they're in their seventies. They don't even know how to work a basic, uh, the dumb phones. Um, they don't even know how, how to work those simple phones and how to send the SMS properly. And I'm just thinking of the language barriers that we have because it's not just English. There's 12 official languages. What about people with disabilities that are deaf or, or, or blind? You know, there's, there's so many layers of this, this, this side of the doctor as well as the patient. What is your views on this, Dr. Cruz? Well, look, you're quite right. And uh, one of the specific intentions of uh, what we're trying to do is to create the um, the extra capacity in the systems that function in public and private so that they can spill over to provide free digital access to those who are 
um, on the other side of the digital device. Now, you might remember that when telemedicine was first allowed in this country about 15, 20 years ago, it was originally intended that it would be a free service for a consultation in the rural areas with a base station. Let's say if you're in the Transkei and you've got a GP who's, who's struggling to diagnose a complex problem, then you could have a call with a specialist in Crotiscale Hospital or in Port Elizabeth or somewhere else. And that is, was a kind of B2B service. But we didn't envisage the idea that the patient can't come to the doctor because of infection risk on both sides. And part of the workaround is that Africa is pretty well covered in terms of mobile telephone usage. Agreed, not all of it is smartphone. But uh, the, the ordinary telephone, I won't mention a brand name, but the, the non-smartphone um, is one of the tools that can be used if you've got a clever system on the other side of the telephone, both to speak the language and to understand and interrogate. So you would have a nurse practitioner, for example, who speaks uh, one of the languages that the person who's accessing it, or they could go to a public hospital base station and and try and have a conversation there, which is then transmitted through to to a specialist. But we don't have all the answers. And we think mm. that just as mobile money was kind of invented in Africa because of the problems of stealing copper wires and all that sort of lack of access to banks. In the same way, there are very few doctors and nurses in South Africa and Africa. And one way of spreading them thinner across the country is to allow everyone to access them in a controlled way using the media that we do have that work, which, which I think is mainly the telephone. So mHealth, as it's called, mobile health, is going to feature strongly. Yeah, it's a, it's a powerful thing. And I think that the as ever, it's important for us to avoid as much as possible binary thinking that we can't do this because, or we can do this because, but to, to go, you know, what is the and both? And that's one of the most uh, inspiring parts of, of Peter's work and Peter's initiatives is using the, the M Health as a way of increasing access for all. And yes, you, we've spoken to the challenges around uh, data, data costs, commons mentioned in, in, in our country and so on. And this is also where what's being called out in us as practitioners, as, as a sector, and as, as more than anything, as citizens of our country, it, what's being called out is, okay, so this is a challenge. What are we going to do together to overcome it? And, and, and I'm not trying to sound evangelical here because that's not, that's not going to add any value to the process. What is required, we know what the challenges are, the key challenges, and it's working with, and, and there's a lot of this happening already, a lot of it is, you know, medical aid organizations working with the telcos and um, those kind of things to, to collaborate, to be able to actually, instead of it being a hindrance, it's actually a very radical opportunity to increase access to high quality healthcare. So now the key purpose of this is that ultimately, even if we're not there yet, the ultimate goal and sooner than later is that the location of a specialist or a doctor or a nurse or whatever is completely agnostic to the location of the patient. And and to use Peter's example of of the telephone style, that is just that at a a far higher velocity. So if, if, Mm. if, if I reach out to Peter, Peter says, this is what I believe it is. I want to get a second opinion. It can just be a ping and I don't have to wait three weeks before I can see the other person. It might be that my, that Peter in this relationship can just ping me back via WhatsApp and just say, all right, you're good to go. It is what I believe it is. I've got a second opinion so that we can all breathe a sigh of relief and that it, there's a level of, of sort of solace and accuracy there. What I love about the mobile element, I can't remember what the campaign was. It was many years ago. There was this campaign was done. Pepco, I can't, not Pepco. I can't remember. It was, it was the United Nations invested the money. Um, there was funding from all over to address the immortality in South Africa. And Johnson and Johnson got involved and they created a, a USSD platform because people are used to prepaid 
and people could register on this little ussd platform and when you're pregnant it will send you notifications and say okay now you're three weeks pregnant now this part of the body has has developed of your child make sure to get this nutrition and this nutrition because the doctors and couldn't handle the clinics of all the women coming in when they have the slightest little fear of their pregnancy um they came into the clinic and they were it was just becoming a, a big disaster and through this program what happened was the immortality or am I saying this right now? Mortality, mortality. or immortality? No, mortality. Mortality. We all want mortality. I want to be immortal. No, I'm joking. Okay. <laughs> anyway, so the mortality rates decreased. Um, but anyway, it just did phenomenally well. And it was just an absolute great case study. And they actually deployed this thing within the whole of Africa. It didn't cost anybody anything. The mothers didn't come in panicked. And they only came in when it was an emergency. And that's what really took the pressure off the, the the healthcare system. And I think what what you're talking about is exactly that. What I am also just going to um, touch on, I always talk about this thing about trust. It's the currency of the 21st century. Credibility is key. One thing that I know that doctors are not so good at is um, branding themselves online. Um, you see, my audience, I'm telling you, you're going to know so much about me. It's going to be scary. Please don't um, hold this against me. I went for a um, lap band surgery. I was 30 kilos overweight a few years ago. And finding the right doctor, I went deep into my research because it's a serious operation. It can go terribly wrong. And I could not find a proper doctor online with reviews, patients that I could contact, no befores and afters. And the only way that I managed to get to the right doctor was with the board association that he was part of the bariatric um, association. And that's how I managed to get to him because I knew I could trust him. But this is the thing that's also very important as we are, you know, immersing ourselves in this digital landscape. I think that doctors also need to take responsibility to build their credibility online. It's not just about, you know, servicing people digitally. People also want to make sure you know your stuff because people, it's, it's a lot to ask to trust technology to do a proper diagnosis when you're not feeling well. I think, first of all, to be aware that there are strict rules against doctors advertising to promote themselves. So that's one of the restrictions that we face, which is a fairly old-fashioned thing. So the doctor can build... Um, a profile within certain parameters only. And many doctors who are in uh, government service, for example, who have large private practices, have not attended to their online and media image. And this is something else that's being fostered now because of COVID. The, the doctors and their practices will need to use social media in order to uh, make the patients aware of the, the skill set and of their credentials and qualifications. And hopefully that will build trust. So that's something new. Before COVID, there wasn't as much emphasis on that uh, because people found their doctors through personal referrals or via their own GPs or whatever it was. Just another quick positive point. You, you will know from the press releases that at least two of our medical aides, two of the largest, have recently introduced voucher schemes, which are prepaid, much like a prepaid phone, where uh, uninsured people or marginally insured or people who are working for an employer can purchase a voucher retail, uh, I believe even at petrol stations and other places. And there are at least 200 medical practices around the country, a number that's going up, who will receive that patient for a, a virtual or a real consultation face-to-face -face within certain parameters, obviously, if it's appropriate. And the, uh, the, the fee for that, including the medicine for that uh, initial treatment, the acute episode, is much, much lower than the average medical aid rate. So this is going to make potentially millions more South Africans able to have low cost, it's not free, but low cost uh, access to high quality healthcare uh, and will reduce the inequality between those who have health insurance and those who don't. Mm. That's very powerful. And I, I, you know, it reminds me of the difference between equity and equality, mm. which the, you know, equality is, is, is such an important principle for us to always be working with and towards with regard to narrowing the gap 
between the haves and the have-nots, and particularly in, in this case, like the, 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 the eye-watering Gini coefficient that we have in our country. Mm. Um, and I th- again, that's one of the, the things that I'm so excited about the this whole initiative that uh, Peter has, is driving with a lot of very, very progressive thinkers. Because it's not just about being a, a sort of highly skilled medical professional in this regard. It's, it's, it's also about sort of being common to, you know, to, this is very much your space, that being future focused and being future fit as well, which is, mm. again, highly subjective. What is that really? Well, it's, it's, it's what, it, what it is for you, what it is appropriate for you, your, your profession, your sector, your organization, and, and your goals and aspirations as a contributor. But the, the, the part of it that I think is very important here is that the what scares us off a lot from from pivoting from changing from progressing is is our it, we don't know how it's not through lack of will or lack of smarts it's like if i i don't know what i don't know right and i think that that's what's very powerful about this community of practice that peter has uh, put together and and is curating mm. and and again it's it's, it's also multiple perspectives from a from a location point of view so that the, the team is uh, comprised of, of you know some of the leading thinkers and, and contributors in, in South African medicine and international people and equally and, and Peter maybe you can chat to this in a bit is that of course the technology aspect of this is, is as important as the healthcare element because you can have really world class and, 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 and highly progressive medical care if we don't know how to get it to people via phones and, and computers and, and, and other devices, then, of course, we did in the water. Good point, David. I think just to, just to add to that, one of the implicit goals of uh, our course is by making medical practices more efficient through digitization, virtualization, the pivot, um, we create some spare capacity in the practice. It's possible to see more patients uh, and to increase the access of patients through telemedicine, which you can't do if you're having a waiting room and seeing people face-to-face, dressing, undressing, mm. etc., for common conditions. And our vision is that those doctors who can create the spare capacity in the private sector can give it pro deo, pro bono, to uninsured patients or voucher patients. Mm. And so that will increase the access. We, we can't overnight uh, rapidly increase the number of doctors or nurses or other specialists in the country but we can increase the access of everybody else to them. And I'm not saying mm. work them harder, but work them more efficiently. And so part of what we're, we're doing also is to look at the back office, the point that David brings up. If you think about COVID philosophically, the clinical side in terms of the ability of our doctors and nurses um, and our laboratories to cope with the load did pretty well. And although they were severely stressed, they've, they've managed and you know our mortality from COVID is a bit lower than other countries. Um, And we need to take some credit for that. But what COVID showed was that it was our business side of medicine, the operational side, the supply of staff, the scheduling of staff, the supply of PPE and the provision of that, the supply of ventilators in the beginning and now of vaccines. It's, It's also about the trucking and the, you know, the inventory and the stock. And these are business concepts. So what we're going to do is to teach medical practices to create business efficiency in the back office. And that will reduce their cost by using telemedicine more, particularly the telephone in our country. They will be able to see more patients more efficiently without going bankrupt, because that's the Mm. other side. Medicine's very expensive. And um, this is one way of using what we've got better instead of you know working smarter rather than harder, saying we've got a good public sector which is struggling but has done quite well. We've got a pretty good private sector. If they work together and share their resources, the extra capacity of one can accommodate for the... Um, and I think just to say something which probably needs to be said too, our regulators have also come to the party. They're not the problem. Oh, yeah. They, they're part of the solution. The Health Professional Council, to mention but one, which until March last year, exactly a year ago, really didn't allow telemedicine for various reasons, rapidly came within weeks and provided new regulations and guidelines which enabled it. The um, Board of Healthcare Funders and the medical aides who hadn't really been asked to pay for telemedicine, they didn't even have a code 
an ICD-10 code to pay for it. They came to the party and agreed that they would allow consultations, that it would have a lower fee, but it would still be reimbursed. And uh, the, the medico-legal side, the lawyers are working around the case law, which says, well, if you are, as a doctor, treating a person in good faith using telemedicine, and if it's appropriate to treat that patient, not a, an obvious emergency, the fact that you weren't able to examine them physically shouldn't really be held against you in a court mm. if something goes wrong. I think you've got to have some uh, practicality. So here are three different stakeholders that have all made a contribution to, to make uh, you know, the, the, the overall system function better, which it has done. And I mean, if, if we look, I'm really into case studies and I, I'm, I'm fascinated by them. If we look at Cleveland, they created an app uh, many years ago and this was before anybody adopted it and it was like spoken about like this is so futuristic and everybody couldn't wrap their minds around this is possible. And it's an app that you download, you're not feeling well, you do your temperature check on the phone, Every everything happens. It's like a decision tree. So it asks you like your, your diagnosis processes when this, when that, and you ask all the right questions, okay, this is what's wrong. If it's vital um, signs of something that's wrong, then it would say, come come and see the doctor. But if it's just ordinary flu, although ordinary flu might scare people these days, but if it's just ordinary flu, then it would say, okay, fine, it's going to cost you $50 and you need the following medicine. We've sent your um, prescription to the pharmacy and it will be delivered in your house in two hours. Yeah. This is already happening. So we as a, as a country or as a continent need to evolve. If we want to become a developed continent, we also need to adapt to the way of how things are, are being done and also just start adapting accordingly because when we started this whole interview, you spoke about this whole, you know, we weren't ready for this. Um, and it's that whole old fashioned business model, like thinking, you know, things mm. are going to change, just doing the same old thing over and over and over again and not adapting to change. And one of the things that I always think about, I work in marketing, digitally savvy, and I, I help businesses to build mm. connected brands. So for me, it's ordinary, but I'm also an entrepreneur. So as much as I'm out there doing the job, I still have my own business to work on. So the challenge that I'm just thinking about is doctors are on the ground doing all the work. So they need to work on their businesses as well as in their businesses. And what are the, some of the challenges that you foresee with doctors in, in their type of environment of balls that they possibly could drop that you will be addressing? Okay, very good point. And if I could just mention the good news is that the model you described uh, from Cleveland is actually already available in South Africa. I won't mention Yay! <laughs> any trade names, but one of the one of the medical aids um, has um, already got a program which was rolled out just before Christmas, in which a subscriber, a member, can buy a device, which is essentially a remote patient monitoring device, which will be delivered by a well-known courier company to your door. And that device will take your blood pressure uh, with, uh, with obviously some instruction. It's got a pulse oximeter, which is the key device for measuring your oxygen saturation, which is one of the key parameters for COVID. It will take your temperature and it, it can measure your heart rate. And so that digital information can be sent by telemetry through to the GP before the consultation or during the consultation so that we're not batting in the dark. The device and the uh, uh, medicines that are prescribed are delivered by the same courier, uh, exactly as you described here in South Africa. But I think, to be fair, this model is available to, if you like, the premium insured, not the general population, but at least on a scale, you know, that, that could be enlarged to provide much more digital access through devices. But to, mm. to go back to your, to your other point... Um, and I'll be a bit philosophical here because I've been, I've been a doctor for, you know, what, 40 years or something. And um, I've also been teaching doctors and, and now teaching business to doctors. We have a philosophical problem in medicine, and that is that many uh, doctors d don't believe that medicine is a business. They, they think it is a vocation, a calling, and so on, which it is. I'm not denigrating that at all. And very few medical students or nurses, for that matter, go into the profession to make money. But you don't have to make a profit. You just have to use the method of business, the systems of business, in order to run your business, even if you don't call it a business, more efficiently. 
So many of the aspects of running a medical practice, which I know a bit about having started some and having run hospitals and clinics and laboratories, are simply good business processes. Marketing is one, you've mentioned that already, social media. Uh, HR can be outsourced and there's a lot of software that will enable you to do that. CRM, customer relations management through, through uh, software again, can be outsourced. Finance can be outsourced by, by remote accountants and bookkeepers and so on. And there are, so there are many aspects of what doctors traditionally call the back office, which in many of their practices fell over during COVID under the stress test, which we mm. can fix as well. So partly we're trying to be holistic and say, well, part of the solution is the, the telemedicine suite of solutions for the clinical side. Part of it is the business pivoting, changing your model to include, we're not saying give up face-to-face, you keep all those things, but you do them as part of a hybrid model in which you do face-to-face in a limited way where it's appropriate and safe, and you spend more time on the phone and email and on Zoom with your with your telepatients, if you like, practicing telepractice. And then if you simultaneously work, and it's going to take a couple of years maybe, to systematically fix your back office. You digitize it, you, you buy software as a service. And there are all sorts of things you can do to fix the back office where much of the cost lies. And then you can fix your front office, which is traditionally the receptionist, the telephone answering through chatbots, conversational chatbots. And we will, we will be able to demonstrate some of these where patients can do quite a lot of business, if you like, using the phone through an SMS, book an appointment, book a repeat prescription, uh, symptom checker, follow up, all of that sort of thing. There you create this capacity. And then if we go even further, the practice becomes ultimately so much more efficient that it has spare capacity, let's say 20% spare, to give that away free to those who don't have cover. And I think mm. that's where really the answer. So we're using the brains and the people in, that we already have in the country just to work smarter and to do more with less. Mm. So before we, we, we actually go into this this amazing program that we, we've spoken about throughout the, this um, chat, but also that you're going to talk to us about, I want to ask you about one important thing. As COVID happened, obviously, there's been a lot of conspiracy theories and believing this and not believing that, which also impacts doctors because they have to, you know, there, there's all these conspiracy theories, what people believe, which is not necessarily true which is a challenge. And, and this also leads to another problem, which is um, cyber security and what is happening to our data. And because if our data is compromised in any shape or form, this can go into the wrong hands. This is also how conspiracy theories and fake news gets deployed and, and so forth. So what, what are doctors doing um, you know, to protect the data? Because they actually sit with the most valuable information about a human being. They do. And obviously, this is fundamental to the practice of medicine. It goes back to your point about trust. One of the key elements in in the medical transaction is the trust that the patient has in their doctor and in, that the doctor will keep their data, you know, secret and private. Now, you'll be pleased to hear on the course, we have a, a real expert in cybersecurity who's actually the chief digital officer of one of the larger um, medical providers in the country, one of the large hospital groups. Uh, they've actually had real experience with actual hacking, not hypothetical hacking, but actual hackers. And he's going to be giving us a course on cybersecurity. So the people who attend the Henley course will get uh, at least a full session on that. And then later, we're planning to roll out a short course on cybersecurity because it is becoming a very serious problem without going mm. into the politics, the, the Russian hacking allegedly of the American election um, and, you know, various banks have been hit and there are all sorts of other examples, including hospitals in our country. So cybersecurity will be one of the additional modalities that the revamped future-proof medical practice will have to look at. And then I mm. want to mention another aspect is we've also got an expert on the course who's going to be talking about how to build the practice back better. There's no point in rebuilding something if it's the same old, same old, because it will have the same flaws. So we have a, 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 she's actually a female of Pakistani ethnicity who has a master's degree in finance and business operations from Boston and the London School of Economics, who's going to talk about how to make your medical practice lean, so more efficient, green, 
making it use less carbon, generating less waste, etc., and more carbon neutral. So as you build a future-proof medical practice, you're also doing something for the planet. It's not just the wow. people. But we, we've thought this thing through in such a way that you'll end up with a sports model medical practice, we hope, uh, which runs more efficiently. Where you know, And another aspect which I'm keen on, doctors need to get a better quality of life, and so do all the people that work with them. And the old model is just too stressful. Too many hours are thrown at things. By creating mm. more business efficiency, by outsourcing more, by having more time, not driving up and down in their cars to various consulting rooms, wasting petrol themselves, by seeing people online, those efficiencies will give them a better quality of life. So we will not burn our doctors and our nurses and other staff out. So we're trying to think about it from, from all the stakeholders. It's a multi-stakeholder view, very holistic. You see, I'm not even a doctor and I want to go on to this course. <laughs> it sounds you, amazing. You don't have to be a doctor. <laughs> ah, oh, that's even better. <laughs> um, so, so uh, David, so how did this partnership come about with Henley and Dr. Peter Cruz? Tell us a little bit more about it and how can our audiences learn more about the course? been an amazing uh, amazing journey that uh, has covered an, a lot of ground in a relatively short period of time so as peter mentioned he did an mba under john foster pedley's uh, tutelage 20 odd years ago and this is why peter is, is is so perfectly positioned to be you know the author and curator of this uh, program because coming back to what um Peter spoke about just now is a, a common assumption, belief, dissonance in healthcare and similarly in education, possibly other sectors too, is that the specialists, so in this case, the, the doctors and the medical professionals, the, 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 the imperatives of the back office, you know, really good administration, good commercial practice are often very removed. And there, there's a, a deep assumption that they are mutually exclusive. And as Peter's already spoken to, is the back office and the front office are clearly not mutually exclusive, mm. regardless of worldviews and, and perceptions. And the program is very much to, that, that's the kind of true north or the epicenter of the program, is to, to very symbolically bring those two. So Peter approached John Foster Pedley, who's uh, our Dean and Director of Henley Business School, with this proposal and for us it was a no-brainer to go for it because it is exactly what um, we as a business school are wanting to support and, and, and progress for um, for our country and for businesses and for the people and that is to bring greater levels of commercial acumen to the art and the science of healthcare. Mm. I say arts, that might uh, alarm certain people because people would rather have it just be referred to as science. But I think I think if there isn't art or creativity and craft in any profession and its execution, then it, it's probably not real life. So with all of that said is Peter has put together a program and a, and a, and a group of highly experienced practitioners to, to specialists in uh, each aspect of the program. And we're about to go live with it now, you know, in, in two weeks' time to be uh, specific. And it's been put through the level of rigor, the, the iteration of the program, you know, it, and to ensure, and, and we have fact and sense checked it with a lot of people to ensure that not only has it got relevance and impact for the objective, but it's also something that we can uh, scale and one thing that peter reminds us of r like regularly which is very important is that medical professionals are not just doctors that's who we think of because those are the people that we know doctors are held for good reason in very high regard in, in any facet of society it's important that we speak about all of the people in the in, in the entire sector so the administrators the nurses as well as the physicians and the surgeons. So with all of that said, we've got a, a program now that has been rigorously prototyped and incubated that is now ready for the world. We're excited about it. 
we believe that it's going to achieve the objectives, not just for for the business school or for individuals, but for 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 the people of this country and our economy. If we can deliver better, faster, accessible healthcare to the citizens of this country, it can't not have a positive impact on people and on uh, economy and and good health. If I could just um, add a little point of information, uh, just to just to prove that point, uh, among the speakers are an occupational therapist, a speech therapist, and a physiotherapist. So it's not just for doctors, and we're very keen to recognise the role that the non-doctors play. And also, one way the doctors are overwhelmed, and by other people taking on more work through, for example, the telehealth part, many nurse practitioners can run simple um, but very effective clinics. Uh, without a doctor and only refer the odd patient to the doctor, thereby saving the doctor time. And if a patient does need referral, the nurse has already worked up the patient diagnostically, will have take, asked the right questions, taken all the measurements. So I, I think there's an orchestra here of healthcare mm-hmm. that we can work with, that can work together uh, in a much better functioning way. And that, that this is, uh, you know, without being evangelical, is a broad church that we're trying to create where Everybody stretches themselves and does a bit more, and we take the resources we have, and we all try and do more with less cost and less time. And that should have some uh, ability to generate the capacity that I envisage where we can stretch our healthcare providers more and provide better care to more people. This is fantastic. Um, Well done. I'm very excited. And, you know, for me, it's always so important that we need to – push the boundaries, move forward, be future fit and create the world that we want to see in the future. And and I just want to applaud you, Dr. Cruz, for, for all the hard work that you've done and the passion to make this a, a different landscape for doctors and medical practitioners and everybody that's that's in the field. You know, I can see a lot of work has gone into this. So, so well done Thank and you. well done to Henley and David. I know that you've been involved with this for a very long time, very passionately as well. So I'm very excited to see how you guys are going to dent the universe and make a difference. So as a patient, I can conclude that I am feeling a little bit safer now that I know that these things... <laughs> Is, is being addressed because I must tell you, I'm one of those people. I, oh. <laughs> can I go to the dentist now, Dr. Cruz? Yes, of course, of course you can. And, and of co- I, I hope your dentist <laughs> will practice very safe uh, precautions. I mean, life has to carry on. And, uh, you, you know, in the end, if, if COVID stops all of healthcare, which it has done in some areas, like elective surgery, um, then, you know, your dental hygiene will suffer. So, yes, I mean, I've been to mine um, during the COVID period. <laughs> and I, I think we've got to take calculated risks with safety precautions and PPE and keep the system moving. No, totally. And if we want to build the economy, right, we, we all need to play our part as the community. I'll go to the dentist. That's David? right. Yeah. And, and Carmen, absolutely, you know, to refer again to the important piece that you spoke to earlier about trust is that it's important for us to always remember that the dentist, the doctor, the nurse, the receptionist, anybody who's working in a health care environment has the, the same or very similar concerns. They're, they're also individual mm. citizens with family, friends, fears, aspirations, and equally hard-earned reputations mm. that they don't want to just go and bin because they were lax with PPE or so on. You know, the, mm. like Peter, I, I was at the dentist just yesterday and I was very, very aware my entire experience from the time I put my hand on the, the, the front door to walk in till the time I left, the the care, the discipline mm. and, and the sincerity of cleanliness and respect was, was absolutely palpable throughout the entire practice for, for me I, I was I felt privileged to be a part of it but let's not forget too the terrible price that healthcare professionals have paid in terms of mortality mm. morbidity and and their lives being and livelihoods being affected by this so it is a partnership that has to happen between the doctor the patient and the healthcare system and we also want to try and blur the divisions between the the old fashioned us and them you know um, mm. The private and the public. The, these are all resources we have in the country. We have to fire on all the cylinders, bring everybody mm. together. We have the brains to do it. It's really about working smarter rather than harder. I think we've worked hard enough now. I've got to 
use our smarts. And, you know, this uh, Afrikaans expression, a boermaker plan, as, as a nation, we are quite innovative. <laughs> and we've got to just uh, work around these challenges in such a way together that we, we come up with smarter solutions, which, and this is something else we should add, looking at the future, it's probable that the COVID scenario is going to be with us for many years. It's not going to end in, in April, like somebody once told us. Um, and therefore, this, this is the new normal. And any changes and innovations and improvements that we bring about, particularly in thinking and in business models and so on, are here to stay. And we don't want to see any of this reversed. It's not, we're not going to go back to conventional if COVID vaccines all work and suddenly the, the thing goes away. Because there'll be another challenge next time around, another epidemic. And this is part of future-proofing, is to be ready for the shocks, for the unpredictable which do happen, as we've seen, and which catch us unprepared, so that the, we, we build in resilience and sustainability. And that also helps us to, to be more confident so that we don't fall over when, when the, the high winds come. Fantastic. Well, I want to thank you, gentlemen, for being here today. It was an absolute privilege. I really enjoyed this, and I actually learned quite a lot thank you. about as a, from a patient perspective, but also from a from a business perspective. And and I think one of the the key takeaways for me is I think sometimes we look at it from a different perspective, and we're like, oh, but we always forget that there's always regulators and very important people behind the scenes that also control this whole environment, and people can't just do what they want to do. Um, irrespective, no, um, right. you know, of, of how we We're see the world. We're working in a system, an ecosystem, which is regulated. Correct. Correct. Yeah. Um, so from my side, thank you very much. And in the link below, we will put all the information in order for you to go and check out this course. If you know a doctor or a medical practitioner or you, your, you yourself are one, maybe you can come and join this course. I think it will really be life-changing um, and buy yourself some time. Thank you so much, everyone. Bye-bye now. Thank you very much indeed for having us. Thank you, Carmen. You've been listening to The Carmen Murray Show, another solid gold podcast. Please take a moment to rate and share this episode with friends and colleagues who love customer experience and marketing just as much as you do. To connect with Carmen, visit CarmenMurray.com, where you will find links to her business services, future fit events, and biz community articles. Carmen Murray is CEO of Ouya Modern Marketing Services that empower businesses to deliver premium customer experiences, B2B, B2C, and B2B2C across all industries. Some of these services include research, CX Strategy, Persona Development and Customer Journey Mapping, CX Audits, UX Audits, and the Connected Marketer Training in Connected Customer Experiences, Mobile, Data Management, and AI. You've been listening to another episode from the Solid Gold Podcast Studios.